Welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And it's been a busy old time at St Emlyn's. It feels like a long time since you and I have chatted on the podcast, Simon. There's a lot to catch up on. I am sorry we haven't been able to podcast more frequently, but there is a big project coming up, which perhaps we'll tell you about a bit later on. But we've been busy, busy people. Blog site's been busy. I hope you've had a chance to read the articles that have been written by our team. Lots there from lots of different people. We thought we'd chat a bit about that, a little bit about the scientific conference, which I know you've just come back from, Simon, and a little bit about the state of emergency medicine in general. Let's look at the blog site. There's been lots on there what what do you think have been the highlights from the last month or so that we've been talking about on the blog well, I managed to get something out in the middle of September about declaring major incidents. And this was on the back of the Manchester bombing and some of the other conferences which has been going on in the UK. And it was around the traditional method of alerting your colleagues to a major incident was by the telephone. Actually, it was almost based around the idea that you would be working with landlines. Your switchboard would have a list and you start at the top and invite this person, then this person, and this person. In reality, the world has kind of moved on since then. You have WhatsApp and Facebook and Twitter. And somebody quite rightly asked the question, well, why aren't we using these modern technologies for communication to alert people in a major incident when communication is known to be a massive problem? We've put something together on the blog side about how to declare a major incident using a technology such as WhatsApp. You think, oh, well, that's easy. I'll just use a WhatsApp group and put it together. But actually, with a little bit of thought, you can tailor this to setting up a specific group around alerting your colleagues at a particular grade to very serious incidents in your department. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful about this because there are some confidentiality rules and you've got to be a little bit careful about what you put out. But there is no doubt that if you set this up in advance, you think about it in advance and you prep for it, you can do something probably in half an hour, which will robustly deliver an alerting system for your major incident plans. And it's about preparing for it. You need to be ready. That's why we have these dry runs. It's why we have these major incident practices. And thinking about communication is really important. When you talked about the, the methods we used to have, it reminded me of when you used to go on a school trip. And there was this sort of tree system where the teacher would call two parents and then those two parents would call another two parents. And then those four parents would call another two parents. And by the end of it, you all knew what time the bus was going to arrive. And actually, I think some of us have still got that plan for our major incidents. And yet communication has changed so much And we need to keep up to date with it. So jump onto the blog and there's some really nice little tips there about how you set, say, a specific ringtone for that particular group so that you know it's an emergency and how you set it up so that it goes off 24-7. So have a look at that. Some really sort of fine detail which we picked up after the major incident bombing in Manchester, which you can make this work really, really well. So simple things, making life easier. That's what we're all about at St Emlyn's. Now, we've had some science on the blog as well, Simon, quite a lot about clots. We've got some clot experts in our group. Dan Horner, newly appointed professor of emergency medicine, has been putting some stuff on there. What do you think is the most important we need to know about clots at the moment? Dan's actually just done a nice presentation at the annual scientific conference in Liverpool this week, looking at the issue of whether or not we should anticoagulate people with lower limb immobilisation. So if you put somebody into a plaster for, say, an Achilles tendon rupture whilst they're awaiting surgery, or maybe that's your definitive management or they've got a a significant ankle fracture and they're going into a cast whether or not they need prophylactic low molecular heparins it's been tricky there's been lots of information knocking around about this dan's actually done some really interesting scientific work around it some initial pilot studies so dan was talking about the tilly study which is a new study looking at whether or not we should give prophylactic low molecular heparin to this group actually the evidence for it at the moment isn't perfect Dan at the conference went through all the background to this and showed that a lot of our decisions at the moment are based on relatively imperfect data. And he was part of the group that set up the GEMNET guidelines. These are the ARCHEM guidelines about who you should give prophylaxis to. 
in brief, what they say is that if you have absolutely no risk factors whatsoever, then you probably don't need low Milky Way heparin, but have a discussion with the patient. And if you have risk factors for DVT, then you probably should. But actually, it's an area which requires further research. And I'm glad to see that Dan and colleagues around the country are putting that research together now. I have seen in my career at least one young patient who's been put into a cast and then has had a fatal pulmonary embolus. We need to do this as well as we can. It's a tricky thing. And I would actually come back to the idea of make sure the patient needs the cast in the first place. We do have some different options. Make sure the diagnosis is correct. A cast is not without potential harm. So get that bit right first and then follow the guideline in your department and make sure that your department leads, whoever that might be, for this particular area are up to date with all the evidence. It's very hard for us all to stay up to date with everything. And that's partly one of the key reasons why the blog site exists. Go and have a look, have a read, see what Dan says. Hopefully we can keep up to date as best we can keep doing the best for our patients. I think it's really interesting you say about immobilisation. The number of people I immobilise into plasters is actually tiny. If they have an injury which is so unstable they need to go into a cast, they probably need surgery. And if it's not unstable, then why does it need to go into a cast? Can it not go into something else? One of the questions that did come up in the conference actually was whether or not putting somebody in a walking booth or an air cast or some other device like that is actually better than going into a cast. And the answer is... Well, probably. We think so. It sounds about right. Not entirely sure. We should probably look at that as well, was the simple answer. And well, it's not a very simple answer, is it? It's difficult. It makes sense to me, but we still don't actually know. And there's there's loads that we don't know about clots, actually. It's really interesting when you get into it. There's another post actually by Dan this month looking at the treatment of superficial vein thrombosis. So do you anticoagulate people if they've got a superficial vein thrombosis in the lower leg? Not everybody does, but I think there's reasonably good evidence that you probably should for a lot. So I'd, I'd go and have a look at the blog post actually on the SVTs. That was published on the October the 13th. And he spoke to the lead author of the trial, which was really interesting, uh, talking about whether or not you treat SVTs. They advocate using ultrasound to delineate how big these are, whether or not there's actually a DVT associated with which you've missed. So you probably should be, well, no, you should be ultrasounding all of these patients. And if it's very close to the saphenofemoral junction, you should probably treat as a DVT as well. But again, it's interesting stuff. It's all around balanced decision-making. It's all about you having the knowledge and then having a good conversation with the patient about what you should do with your emergency clotology. And this is something we need to get more and more experts at with the rise of ambulatory care and our interface between us and acute medicine. I'm sure across the country, different people are doing this in a different way, but it's being pushed really hard. The emergency physicians are becoming ambulatory care physicians in many places as well. And this is one of those key diagnoses that we need to know about. We need to be expert in. We can't necessarily just give this decision making to someone else. We're really lucky to have Dan on our team and congratulations to him again on being awarded the chair from the ARCHEM. Highly deserved really proud of the academic standing of all of our team well you know some of our team some of us just go to work every day but we are very lucky to have some real proper academics at St Emlyn's and feeding off that knowledge is hugely important and this is where the rise of FOMED the use of the internet social media can really help us stay up to date Ken Milne at the Skeptics Guide is always talking about knowledge translation if I wasn't part of St Emlyn's and I wasn't aware of the blog site this would be completely alien to me I'd have no idea about it and I'm really proud that we can bring this stuff to everyday emergency physicians trying to do the best for patients, trying to understand what is a huge amount of complicated literature and doing everything they can. So there's quite a lot on the blog side about clots this month. I know, Simon, you've been on your travels. You went off to South Africa. Yeah, we did a separate podcast with some UK emergency physicians who are working out in South Africa at the moment. Had a really good time in Sun City at the Emergency Medicine Society of South Africa 
uh, meeting. It was really good, actually. Learned a lot. It was really quite humbling at times that we we think we've got a tough time working in the UK, and we do. I'm not going to belittle the fact that we're having a really hard time. But some of the difficulties that our colleagues face in the African continent are really remarkable. And listening to how they work and how they adapt is inspiring. What was inherent in that? So you think, oh gosh, it's a very, very different place, Africa. They're working in very different departments with different problems. That's true. But actually the mindset of the emergency physician about doing the best for a population of people based on what is often limited resources in terms of time, space, equipment, and just sheer volume of people coming through, that mindset I think is the same wherever I've gone in the world. There is something about being able to deal with multiple problems at the same time with limited resources, which does encapsulate excellence in emergency medicine. I was inspired listening to that podcast that you did, actually. There's so many things that go on throughout our world that we can learn more from. So other things which have come up on the blog this month, we had a really interesting guest post this month from one of my colleagues in Manchester, Harriet, who's a fabulous emergency physician, really, really, really talented, very kind with patients and has a fabulous career in emergency medicine. But actually, she's also got some health issues. And she talks about her problems with rheumatoid arthritis from her early diagnosis through her medical training and a realisation that to work in the ED is a physical job. It, you have to be up and about. A number of our colleagues will struggle with that due to long-term illnesses. I'm not going to take the message away from Harriet. I think you should go and read this because you will know somebody who has chronic health issues. And I'm not sure that I've always understood what impact that has on them. And you may have one of your colleagues who's hugely aspirational to do the job that you do, but there are limitations. And I think it's really made me stop and think about what we can do to support these people. I think we should try and support people with acute illness better too and always recognise it is a physical job. Walking around an emergency department, I've never put a pedometer on myself, but I do quite a few miles when I'm on a shift and I'm managing the department. We're coming into that season where people are going to get a bit poorly. Make sure you look after your staff, give them time to recover. And for those people like Harriet who have things that are ongoing, we can do our bit to help and we can modify this job to make it so that it's something as many people as possible who want to do it can do it and they can do it brilliantly. We've also got some stuff around more evidence-based medicine. We love a bit of evidence-based medicine. And one of the things we talked about, I think, in the past is whether or not you give oxygen to patients with acute coronary syndromes. And there's a really interesting study called the Detox Sweetheart Study, which, you know, amongst names of studies, not bad, actually. Sweetheart, because it's about the Swedish Heart Registry. This study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is a database analysis that looks at outcomes for patients who presented with ACS and whether or not they get oxygen. And the big news here is that it doesn't really make a lot of difference. All that stuff which we've been changing our protocols for over the last few years to say that oxygen kills may not actually be true. So this is a further refinement of the evidence out there. And actually, maybe it doesn't make a difference. Now, clearly for me, if I see a patient with ACS and they've got low oxygen sats, I'm going to give them oxygen. But if they've got high oxygen sats, they've got normal oxygen sats for them, I'm not going to give supplemental oxygen. So it, in some ways, it reinforces what my current practice is, but it's good evidence. It's published. It's well-designed. Swedes do some really good clinical epidemiological research. and I'd recommend you go and have a look at this. It's a guest post by Niall Morris, who's one of our current PhD students working with Rick Body. Very, very clever guy. Writes really well. One or two other bits of science. I know Rick with his troponin interest. I think Rick's a bit interested in troponin. I, I'm not sure if anyone's noticed that, but he seems keen on it. There's been a challenge from a new molecule. Oh, yes. The cardiac myosin binding protein C. I think this was put up because there was so much 
coming out in the press about this fabulous new marker which could send people home in a matter of hours. Interestingly, over the years, because we've done so much cardiac research in Manchester, we've been through this ourselves. A study will be seen, it'll be picked up by the press, and then all of a sudden, everybody's going to have this next week. And the reality of science is it doesn't work like that. This is a new marker. It has promise. It could be very helpful, but it's actually similar to a lot of other markers that we've looked at in the past in Manchester in cardiac diagnosis. And there are many, many barriers before CMYC is going to be delivered in your emergency department. So there's two aspects of this. I think you should read it because it's interesting if you're interested in ACS, and we all are. It's also interesting to see how press releases and information and science can get over-egged and just appear and you can get the wrong message. So that's kind of the new. And then we've got some of the old as well. So Chris Gray, member of the St. Emmons team, has done, a, I think, a really good one on tetanus. Oh, gosh, tetanus just seems like you know it and everybody knows how to manage tetanus. But actually, I don't think we manage it as well as we, we should. And some of my public health colleagues up in the northwest of England have got some quite good evidence locally that we don't manage tetanus very well and that we're not giving the right immunoglobulin or boosters to the right people when they come to the ED. Tetanus is one of those bugbears that I remember as a kid, I got asked it every time I went in with any sort of injury. And I think I had multiple tetanus injections as a child. I tended to get myself in a little bit of, you know, mischief now and again. Let's not forget that balance again of harm versus benefit. And to have a tetanus injection, well, it really hurts. And why do something that really hurts if you don't need it? And Chris has brilliantly gone through the guidance there to say who it is that needs tetanus vaccination but more importantly also who needs tetanus immunoglobulin so have a proper read of it because that will really help you do this properly and to move your practice forward i still hear colleagues and i see it in other places where they say oh well if you've had one within the last 10 years you don't need one we've moved on things are different remember that harm versus benefit make sure the right people are getting the right vaccinations and the idea that oh well we'll just give it to be safe I don't want an injection just to be safe, thanks, because it's sore. I want an injection because it's the right thing to do. Lastly, we've got something from Zaf Kasim, who's an alumnus of Virchester. He worked with us for many years, now works over in the US. Hugely successful guy there, does a lot of really advanced resuscitation. And you'll find him on things like the Reanimate course, which is worth checking out, actually, about eCPR and Reboa and all that kind of stuff. Went over to Baltimore to the AAST meeting, which I think is the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and talked about their experience over there of mass casualty incidents, what we would call major incidents. And there's some real pearls in there. Major instances where we started today. We're still at risk, guys. There's going to be another major incident in the UK. I think it's an inevitability. This is the time to get your plans out, get your major incident cards out, think about whether it will work, update your contacts, have a look at this blog post, and learn from what they've experiences were in the Florida nightclub, in the Boston bombings and some of the other events over there in the US. And that really completes the review of our blog posts. But Simon, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the College of Emergency Medicine conference in Liverpool that's just happened recently. I followed the tweets from home. I wasn't able to go myself. If you read the newspapers, we've said this before, emergency medicine's in a dire state in the UK and we're all really struggling and it's dreadful and we're all getting burnt out and it's horrible and everyone wants to stop doing it was that the feeling you got when you went into that conference do you think that emergency medicine in the uk is on its knees or is it a different state of affairs that perhaps isn't reported as often i've really been thinking about this this week and it's a real struggle to get my head around what's going on there is no doubt that there's increasing awareness there's increasing understanding and there's a definite drive to try and improve the working conditions the mental health the resilience the ability for us to cope with acute work stresses, to maintain our compassion. There's lots of that going on. And there's some really 
inspiring some fantastic presentations at the college conference about this notably speaking about caroline leach who did a really good one about compassion and how she lost it for a period of time and how she regained it i think that's a journey that many of us have been on backwards and forwards and we may go down that route again if you look at the title sometimes you think oh gosh this is very depressing but then you meet the people and you meet the people who are yeah working really hard but still inspired by their jobs, still actually enjoying what they do. And I think the people who are succeeding at the moment and the people who are maintaining a degree of wellness are those who have the circumstances, the ability, whatever it is. And I think it's a combination of their experience, their personal factors and their external factors. That ability to balance that acute work stress against all the positive things that we do. It's still a fabulous job. We do amazing things. It's understanding where that balance lies. The bottom line is there's a realisation that we need to really look after ourselves. You've spoken a lot about this and our colleagues. And again, you could argue that the people going to the conference aren't necessarily representative of the whole of UK emergency medicine. The people who get to go to the conferences are probably working in supportive departments who are freeing them up from the time where they can get away and they can do those things. And we have got to acknowledge that there is perhaps an unheard majority. The problem we have is they're unheard, so we don't know who are working ridiculously hard in departments which are massively overstretched, struggling to keep their heads above water. I hope at St Emlyn's we can try and do our bit to maintain morale. We're advocates for our specialty in the best way we can be. We all believe, I think, that this is an amazing job we do, but we don't want to be naive and pretend that it doesn't have its difficulties. We're recording this in October. Winter is around the corner. Again, promised to be the hardest winter ever. Sounds like something out of Game of Thrones. We're going to struggle. There's going to be hard times, but hopefully we're getting there. Hopefully we know how to support each other. And more than that, we know that we're doing a good job. The other thing I got from the conference, just looking at the Twitter feed, Simon, was that this is not a specialty that's standing still. We're making progress scientifically. It is the annual scientific conference. From outside, people look at us and I see comments again on Twitter about triage specialty and all this other stuff. But we are doing some really good work we're making strides. This isn't the specialty that I joined 10, 15 years ago. I think you're right. Although there was also a mood that we need to accelerate the academic side of the specialty. I think one of the tweets that went out, and I've not fact-checked this, so this could be fake news, is that there are 16 professors of emergency medicine in the UK and 149 in Greek. I, I don't actually believe that. But there are enormous numbers of, say, orthopaedic academics. And the number of ED academics is relatively small. No, it's not just relatively small. It's tiny. We need to expand that and we need to grow the next generation of emergency medicine academics. And so there's some really interesting ideas coming out around that. I think the NAHR are going to be advertising some posts which emergency physicians should be able to apply to. And actually, I was pretty inspired by some of the junior academics I met. Jamie Vasalo, for instance, who's doing some fantastic work around triage. He won the prize for the best research project. Our own Laura Howard won the Junior Investigator Award. She's a member of the St. Emlyn's team. So there are some truly inspiring juniors there, but perhaps we need some more. We need to really grow that side of the specialty. This is a real challenge for the management side of emergency medicine. I'm a clinical director of an emergency department and I know that going to our executive who are actually incredibly supportive and saying what I need is I need to employ doctors who are able to do 50%, maybe more of their time in research and it's going to cost us some money. That's a really challenging thing to go to when what they really want is they want bodies on the shop floor seeing patients. We have to find a way to balance the need to see patients with the need to advance the specialty and look after ourselves. And perhaps that's my biggest challenge as a clinical director is helping people to realise 
that we give our best patient care when we do the best for ourselves as well. It's not selfish. The non-clinical activities we do are hugely important. I will go on and on and on about this. Restricting the amount of non-clinical activity that consultants do or trainees do or higher specialist trainees do does not make patient care better. Just because they're on the shop floor doesn't mean that more patients get seen in a more timely fashion. You need motivated, inspired staff in a department that's coherent and working together. And that's the way that our patients will get the best they can possibly get. And just flogging people on the shop floor. Sorry, I've gone a bit soapboxy, but this really matters. Flogging people doesn't get you there. I'm lucky. I have an executive at my hospital, a chief exec who properly gets this. But I know that isn't the state across the whole country. I think many of the people at the conference would completely agree with you both in both aspects that if you have great support, it's fantastic, but also it doesn't happen everywhere. And I think that is an issue and the college is working to improve that. One of the issues that was raised by Chris Moulton, I think, was that it's quite difficult for the college to represent aspects such as this because it's so disparate between the ivory towers which you and I work in and some other departments how do you compare a major trauma center with 26 consultants with a peripheral DGH in a geographically isolated environment with just four consultants it's quite difficult I think we do need to be mindful that it's not the same experience everywhere so it sounds like a positive experience from Liverpool I know that we still have our ups and downs in the St Emelins team and one of the key things that I get from being part of this is that Usually, if there's one of us having a tricky time, the rest of us will pull the other one along. And I hope that's what's happening in your departments at the moment. Winter is coming. We'll keep bringing you stuff on the blog site. We have got a new project on the podcast, which we're working on now. Want to make sure we get right before we tell you more about. But it's an exciting project, which we hope we'll release in the next month or so. And really to try and keep your passion for emergency medicine as winter comes. You're doing good work. You're making a difference. And hopefully St. Emlyn's is reminding you of that on a day-to-day basis. Thank you.